Welcome to the Health Conscious Podcast, a creation by Cornell students in the Sloan Health Administration Program. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast explores healthcare trends in today's world. And now, please welcome your hosts, Daniel and David. Today, we are here with Christian Taji, who is currently a Director of Operations at Blue Cloud Pediatric Surgery Centers out in Texas. Before that, Christian spent over two years with ChenMed, a value-based care company where he began as a leadership fellow and eventually became a regional business director where he supported strategy and operations for 32 full-risk primary care centers across Illinois, Kentucky, Georgia, Louisiana, and Virginia. Prior to this, Christian went to BYU for undergrad and the Cornell Sloan program for his master's in healthcare administration. This episode is really special for me for two reasons. One is because I recently accepted an offer to join ChenMed as a leadership fellow after graduation from Sloan. And two is that Christian was actually the host of this podcast back when he was a student at Cornell. So we're really coming full circle here. Glad to have you on, Christian. Yeah, no, it's exciting to, to be on. Um, thanks for inviting me. I've never been introduced like that before. So it was kind of a, a great moment right there. Thanks for putting that together. And I'm excited to see the Health Conscious podcast alive and well. Of course, of course. So I just wanted to kind of start off like a little bit more lighthearted. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about you know, your time at Cornell, maybe a favorite experience or memory from your time here. Man, hard to drill it down to one specific experience. I mean, it's kind of a conglomerate of lots of different fun experiences between, you know, going out with classmates and doing CrossFit workouts with Julie Carmel in the mornings or um, hockey games with the number one, like, hockey team in the country at that point in time. And so lots of really fun memories, but one kind of funny memory that I look back on and laugh, um, kind of like an I told you so moment was um, I was working on a case competition um, and I'm not going to name the kind of which which case competition it was or what the prompt was or anything like that. Two of my classmates, um, Noreen and Pragati, and uh, one of our recommendations was a little bit outside of the box. Um, It involved delivering um, various medical supplies via drone. We knew it was outside the box. We knew it was creative. Kind of reprimanded or from the the panel saying like, no, this is like unrealistic. This will never happen. Like this is uh, a little too kind of far out there for us. And so we didn't end up advancing. It was still a good experience. But now I see articles listed about hospitals and organizations like picking this up and starting utilizing drone tech. You could have, you could have been, you know, a founder of a million dollar company at this point, but yeah, right. (laughs) Personally, what what was one of your favorite kind of experiences running the podcast? Do you have like a, a favorite podcasts that you guys held? Yeah, yeah. So we, like you guys do, tried to interview a variety of different guests from different sectors and different parts of their career, and would always tailor our, our episodes, just like you do, differently for every single person. One of my most memorable episodes was uh, with Devin Larson, who is now the CEO of the company that I work for. Not really knowing at this point in time when we reached out to him and scheduled him for an interview, you know, if you'd have told me at that point in time that I'd be working for his company in any capacity four years down the road, I wouldn't have believed it. I loved his message and I loved the, the company, but it's just a funny memory to think that, you know, when I was hosting the podcast, just like you guys were, I um, I invited the guests that I ended up working for yeah. down the road, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I remember the first time we spoke, uh, you know, before the pod, I remember you mentioned something that really stuck with me was that it's great having a podcast because you can reach out to people. And when you tell them they, you have a podcast, they're much more willing to speak to you. So it's, it's very funny that it came full circle for you as well. 
I saw doing research for this podcast that you, you know, originally took on some consulting roles and then upon graduation, you entered a fellowship. So I was wondering why you made that transition. Yeah, sure thing. So um, you're absolutely right. So when I started at Cornell, I was laser focused on going um, into a consulting role after, after Sloan. And I was drawn to consulting for a variety of different reasons, but I really liked the technical aspect of the work that was being done. I liked the the pace at which a lot of consulting firms work. I liked kind of the project-based approach to to work. And so all of those things were things that led me to think, hey, I think consulting is the right gig for me. So I did some things on campus that helped reinforce that, participated in the club, um, took the class, the consulting class in Johnson, um, did a lot of case preparation, and all of those experiences kind of validated what I wanted that I wanted to do it. So I ended up working in consulting um, between my two years and had a great summer internship at a firm called Guidehouse, which was formerly PwC's public sector consulting firm. It was the summer of 2020, so the the internship didn't quite, it wasn't what I expected or what I think anybody expected. It ended up being a fully remote virtual internship, and I'm very thankful to the firm for hosting interns um, amid all the turbulence that was happening. And so creating a meaningful experience. And I worked with really interesting people on some really interesting projects over the course of that summer, but I was fulfilled in, in terms of the, the type of work I was doing. It was just technical, like I was hoping, and the pace was good and really interesting people. But, you know, the other thing, like what I was really looking for and what I was really drawn to was working for organizations, and I'm sure we'll come back to this over the course of the podcast, that address the iron triangle of healthcare. The iron triangle being cost, access, and quality. General principle is it's extremely difficult to find healthcare solutions and providers that make care more accessible, more affordable, and higher quality, right? Like it's easy to find an organization that can increase quality, um, increase access, but cost is, you know, through the roof or it's affordable and it's accessible, but it's, it's not safe or the quality piece isn't in check, right? And so I've always been trying to find those unicorn organizations um, that, that do that. And I, I didn't have with the certainty, I didn't know a, p- a piece of consulting work, especially when you're con- start starting your career in consulting is um, you don't always have total control over the clientele with whom you work. Um, and I really felt passionately about working with Jason that was doing that. So, you know, I, I kind of reevaluated what I wanted to, the sort of organization that I wanted to work for. And I spoke with some friends. And so I had a friend who worked for ChenMed. He spoke very highly of the experiences that he was happening. He was actually from Sloan as well. His name is Jared. We had lots of long phone conversations about the ways that he was being developed and growing in his career at ChenMed. And he described to me both how there was the technical piece that I was searching for. And a lot of the beginning of the Chen Med Fellowship resembles consulting work in many ways. You actually are kind of like a data concierge in many ways for Chen Med's medical centers. Um, but also, like I would certainly be with an organization that was um, making care more accessible, affordable, higher quality for underprivileged individuals. And so that was kind of the way that I, I ended up making the shift. But uh, it wasn't the way that, again, the type of organization that I expected to join after Sloan. But I'm so glad that I did. It was good for my career. It was, I felt very fulfilled in the work that I was doing. I really enjoyed my, my time there that I was there as well. But, you know, it's just so important to always keep your mind open, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy to think like, hey, this is what I want to do. And it's the only way. And I need to just do 
experiences that validate that or support that. But sometimes you also have to be open enough to say, hey, you know what? Like, this doesn't quite feel like the right fit. And you have to be open and humble enough to, yeah, I'll do a bit of a course correction here. Or I'll do a little bit of a course correction there, even if it means deviating from your original plan. And so um, I'm certainly glad that I, I did that um, and, and had a great experience with my time at GenMed. So. Nice. Yeah, you have to have that courage to really evaluate the situation you're currently in and then know when it's the right time to pivot and when it's the right time to steer the course. So I like that. I We're, we're going to get back to ChenMed, but I wanted to hear a little bit more about, you know, were there any principles that you learned in consulting that were transferable once you entered ChenMed into that kind of operations-based role? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the answer is yes. At first, I thought, yeah, like how, how will this be transferable? Because a lot of my work at ChenMed for the course of about a year was running a, a medical center, which there were pieces of it that required that technical component of data analysis and reading my financial statement and things like that. But there were a lot of soft skills in terms of how to coach people and how to lead a team towards a goal, how to motivate people and how to manage performance. So there were some things that I learned, but I think the main things that I learned from consulting, the first thing that I'll say that I was able to do is tell stories with data. Um, I had access to so much data at my fingertips every single day. Um, and if I just handed my team spreadsheets with numbers, maybe, you know, either might be at my sales team or my doctors or my, you know, front desk team or my operations manager, whomever it was, it, it's easy throughout all the different tasks that they're doing to kind of look at the spreadsheet and be like, I move on to the next thing, right? But if you can carefully illustrate a story of this is where we were, look at this trend line or look at this graph or look at this, whatever it is, here's where we are today. And here's the impact to your, my, your job, my job, our, our facility, our center, our patient. And so it was, it was like so much more than just knowing how to pull data, but the next piece is like how to visualize data. And then the next level is how to tell a story and influence people around data. And those are all really, really big pieces of um, of consulting work that I, I leveraged every single day during my time at ChedMed. I would also just say just the speed at which I was able to manipulate Excel, like that was a really, really big thing that I saw uh, many other center directors kind of that were in my capacity also that they would get a little bit bogged down was um, spending time in spreadsheets and, you know, pulling data and organizing data and cleaning data. But being able to, to be quick there was definitely an asset to me. The last thing that I'd say is just the ability to digest complex problems. Like I'll never forget what my first case interview brain teaser question was when I did the consulting path. I had one of the, it was like my first round interview and in, in the interview, somebody asked me like, how many haircuts happen in the United States every year, right? And at the time I was like, yeah, how do I use this skill or whatever? The ability to take a complex question that's multi-layered like that and think, okay, like, well, how do I frame this? Well, okay, you know, how many, how many men, how many women in the country, age groups, how many like haircuts do each this group get? Like the way to think about that was really helpful. And then like to compare that, like to what I was doing in, in ShedMed, like there was a situation where, you know, we wanted to expand our services to better serve the um, Spanish speaking population around us. And so it was like, well, how many, um, individuals on Medicare Advantage plans speak Spanish around us and how many of them have a PCP and what are their likelihoods of coming and seeing us and like all of those different things like they're just kind of whenever you have a broad ambiguous question like that that ability to 
ask the right questions and frame a problem is really helpful. So I'd say those different things like storyboarding, general Excel skills, and solving kind of ambiguous and sometimes complex problems were all super helpful. Nice. Yeah. I've, I've had my own experience with those questions. I got asked in an interview one time, how many band-aids are sold annually in the United States and don't count hospitals. So that's just for something for our listeners to, to think about, but yeah. (laughs) So I was wondering, you know, I, I can certainly answer this, but I think you'd probably have a much better answer. So just for our listeners who don't understand what ChenMed is, would you mind giving us like that quick elevator pitch on what does ChenMed do? Absolutely happy to. ChenMed is a full-risk, value-based primary care provider for Medicare Advantage members. That's a mouthful. (laughs) So just to break down a little bit of what what ChenMed does, what this means from a, a business model and care model perspective their top line for the revenue that they, they generate is a payment that they receive for every patient every month. And that payment is dependent on how medically complex that patient is primarily. So if you have a patient named Sally, right? And Sally is, has selected Ch- HN Med Center as, as her PCP, that center will receive a, a payment every single month that that patient is aligned with them. So it's different because, you know, for the other parts of healthcare, um, Sally would, uh, you know, go to the doctor and the doctor would collect revenue on every visit, procedure, test that's done. Um, that's not the case, right, for, for ChenMed. Now, the, the flip side, because you may have to hear that and think, wow, that's great, like all this, you know, guaranteed revenue every single month, uh, ChenMed's cost structure is very different. So. Any sort of medical expenditure that Sally incurs in the healthcare ecosystem, right, be it a a hospitalization, be it an ER visit, be it a um, specialist visit, um, ChenMed bears the cost of those events. What this means is that ChenMed's mission is to keep patients as healthy as possible and keep them from needing to utilize the, the ER. So, they, they focus heavily on kind of preventative upstream approaches, diet, exercise, screening, social determinants of health needs, food security, all of those great things, building a relationship with the PCP, all of those things in aims to keep patients healthier and um, in doing so increase margin, which for me, that uh, was something that really resonated with me um, working for ChenMed was that our ability to succeed as a business was contingent on our ability to keep patients healthy. And that was a very aligned incentive that I didn't see um, across lots of other healthcare organizations that I was exploring. That's a little bit about what, um, what ChenMed does. When I was you know, interviewing for the organization, I really liked the fact that you're, you're on the right side of healthcare. You're, you know, everyone talks about value-based care, but to really be doing value-based care and then taking that full risk model where you are responsible for all the care that your patients are getting. I think it's really special. So I wanted to hear more about your time as a leadership fellow, specifically at ChenMed. Yeah, absolutely. Moved to Miami before, and I had a blast living in in, in Miami. I actually miss it all the time. I live in Houston, Texas now, and Houston's great too, but Miami is definitely a special place. The way that it, it was structured at the time, and I think that the fellowship has evolved a little bit and become eyes and things like that as time has progressed. But um, all of our fellows, there were 10 of us from different organizations, from different graduate programs across the country, um, were aligned with 
projects that best suited uh, their skill set and interests. So some of us were really focusing closely on revenue-related projects. Some of us were focused really heavily on core operations-related projects. Some of us on finance projects. And so we had projects that were focused on our skill set and interests. But we also served as kind of like a data concierge for a group of facilities. So for me, that was Kentucky. And I ended up actually moving to Kentucky with ChenMed and um, working in a few different capacities there. But when I was in Miami, I would have a weekly call with each of the center directors there. And, you know, they would maybe have a problem with, wow, like we're seeing an increase of hospitalizations. Um, like what, what's going on? And so I being, you know, and so the administrator was able, and the, the director was able to kind of do their daily business and focus on their daily tasks. And I was able to really slice the data and see, okay, like what does this cohort of patients look like that's going to the hospital more? Are they, do they have a certain age? Do they have a certain disease code? Are they engaged with our patients? Are they not engaged with our patients? Like, you know, all of those different things to be able to tease out what's driving the performance at your center and why. And so I, again, going back to that same thing we talked about earlier, was able to package that information, storyboard it and share it with the administrator to know what they needed to do to more effectively run their center. So um, I did that for, I, I was a fellow for two, three months. Um, so my fellowship was cut a little bit short. Um, and that was because um, my, my leader at the time pulled us into a, into a conference room and said, hey, there's this opportunity that's coming up in Louisville, Kentucky. Who wants to go to Louisville, Kentucky? Had, had no ties to Kentucky. I had never been to Kentucky before. I didn't know anything about Kentucky. Um, but, you know, trusted that this was a good opportunity after I learned more about it and where I could make an impact, grow my career, and learn a ton. Um, and so I ended up uh, kind of making that, making that jump. I loved Kentucky. A lot of my peers in my cohort looked a little sideways at me when I chose to move to Kentucky after being in Miami. Again, no slight to Kentucky to any Kentucky listeners that are tuned in today. I loved, I loved Kentucky, but um, it, it was a big jump and really uh, glad that I did it. But so all that to say, um, the short time that I had as a fellow was very rewarding, very fulfilling, very action-packed, but it was also kind of short. Yeah. And so I kind of noticed that. So in our, in our last conversation, it, it was pretty clear to me that you were very quickly thrown into such a high level management role with, you know, a lot of influence into what was going on in that region. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what it was like to, to lead that many people as your really your first job out of graduate school. I'm sure that was a really big undertaking for you. Yeah, you're right. It, it was. And it was um, very hard. It was very hard. I, just to kind of provide more context to the statement as well for the listeners as well. So joined, you know, when I moved up to Kentucky and was supporting a facility with about 40 direct reports um, across medical assistants, nurses, medication technicians, uh, a sales team, a front desk team, as well as um, the providers essentially at that point in time. The ChenMed model is such that the providers you report to a medical leader, but that facility that I joined didn't have an in-seat medical leader. And so I was liaising with the providers and doctors quite a bit as well, too. So it was challenging. I, I mean, um, the, the Sloan curriculum is, is, is excellent, so well-prepared on, on so many different levels, but there are some things that it's, it's challenging to replicate or simulate in a classroom setting that you don't do until you're, you're doing it with, with, with other people, right? So I found myself in a lot of those situations where there were uh, conversations about, 
hey, like we have a team of individuals, some of whom who are not motivated or don't want to work or don't believe in the mission that we have or don't believe or aren't kind of performing in a way that aligns with our mission and vision and values. And how do you identify that and coach around it and motivate people around a common goal? And so I needed to lean on a lot of my professional network for advice at first. So I, I, I had people on speed dial who I was like, hey, this is my situation that I'm in. How do I navigate this this conversation? I've never done this before. Hey, um, I have to issue a you know a performance something or I need to let somebody go. How do you navigate this conversation? I've never done this sort of a thing before. So a lot of it at first was me just leaning humbly on other people's advice and guidance until I learned the right kind of best practices to go about that. And, you know, I just had to also be comfortable at many points in time just saying, um, you know, I, I don't know the answer, right? But I found that just being being authentic and admitting um, and acknowledging faults and weaknesses and shortcomings also uh, went a long way in terms of building up trust. So what I was able to do, um, I'll, I'll say this too, was I, I learned that I was able to build credibility even though I had never held a full-time leadership capacity before in the workplace, I was able to build credibility by being consistent and keeping my word. I could do that all day long. If there was something that I said I was going to do or something that somebody asked me, I would take that seriously and I would get it done. Like just as an example, like in my first week or two, like I held a meeting with our whole entire staff, right? And I said, like, what are the opportunities that, that we have? What are the things that are going well? What are the things that are not going well? Some of the things that they mentioned that were not going well were like, I'll mention a big thing and a, and a small thing. A big thing was that we were understaffed in several positions. Like there were several vacancies. And so the team was tired and stretched thin and things like that. And, and then they also mentioned a small thing, which is that, oh, the fridge is always dirty, right? And so I was like, those are two things that I can address immediately and just show that hey, even though like I haven't been with the organization for a long time or I'm not like some executive that's coming in, I can show that I'm somebody that when I say I'm going to do something, I mean it. And so that day I cleaned the fridge like by myself, like I took all the stuff out, I wiped everything down or whatever. And immediately like the next day in our, in our team meeting, I was like, hey, you guys remember you said that? Like done, taken care of, like we're good. And then I held myself accountable to the bigger issue that they mentioned in terms of the staffing. But I said, I will let, I will give you team a report every week on Tuesdays in our morning meeting of our vacancies and if I'm filling them or not. Right. And if like who I have interviewed and who I've extended offers to and things like that, just to signal to you that we, you are heard and making pro that, that we're making progress on it. So um, I learned that you can gain influence and credibility from ways that are not, Oh, well, I, you know, I've, I've been an executive. I've been a leader leader for so long. No, like I'm, I'm somebody who hears acts and will make wise decisions for our center. I'm on an ongoing basis. So that's what I'd say. That's a, that's a great answer. I that was actually going to be my next question. Just like a specific example. And you gave a perfect one there. It really, I think shows a lot about you that you, you know, even though you were center director, you took on that kind of flipped org structure and you really made the team, you know, your boss and you, you, you went around to make sure that they felt heard in every single aspect. So that's really great. Yeah. And, you know, kind of following this, this journey. So you went from being a center director for about a year and a half to then becoming a regional business director for, you know, Kentucky as a whole, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And so 
I saw that you were supporting strategy and operations for 32 full-risk primary care centers across Illinois, Kentucky, Georgia, Louisiana, and Virginia. So can you tell me about how your mindset changed as you transitioned higher up that leadership of ChenMed and you know managing 32 centers at once? What was your mindset behind your decision-making? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. So I'll, I'll share a little bit to the listeners kind of about the transition and what that role was like too, just for context. So after I'd been in that facility for a little over a year, I was asked to interview for a regional position and the title was regional business director, where instead of running, running a center and having 40 direct reports and being the PNL owner for, you know, one center, um, I was a, the, in the new role, supporting all of these 32 centers um, in the gen care brand in a capacity that was similar to like a chief of staff or a consultant. So I reported to the divisional president and I would support all of the centers on different operational and strategic projects. So I didn't have any direct reports. Um, I didn't have a PNL that I was directly accountable for. And so I was actually reverting back to an individual contributor role, even though I was a support for all of these different facilities across the country. I didn't have direct reports and I didn't have direct PNL kind of ownership. And so it definitely required a, a different skill set um, in, in many different ways. I was able to zoom out a little bit. One of my favorite things about being a center director was being able to come to the rescue whenever it was needed, right? I mean, phone was always uh, ringing, texts were always coming in. There was always light at my office, which was exhausting sometimes, but very fulfilling. And I loved being able to kind of help people in that capacity. And that was removed from me a little bit when I was in, a, in, the, in the new role. Um, I had lots of kind of high level organizational projects that I was working on and spending my time with, but I was able to kind of focus and dig deep and put my head down and ground myself in numbers, needed to learn how to liaise and work more closely with executives. And so I, I needed to kind of learn the right way to uh, to better serve their needs and make their lives easier, which wasn't as much of a part of my center director role. I would say I really had to leverage my ability to gain influence without direct reports. So let me just explain that a little bit. It was, I spoke about gaining influence a second ago, right? Um, you can gain influence from lots of different ways. And one way that a, a, an easy, but generally an effective way to have influence is simply just by saying, well, hey, I'm, I'm the boss, right? You, you report to me, this is the way the org structure works. I, I call the shots or whatever. That was a card that I, not that I pulled it as a center director, I would obviously try and like gain influence by other sources, but when I was working in conjunction with, with other facilities in the regional position where they didn't report to me, I had to really lean heavily on gaining influence through other methods in terms of reliability, credibility, demonstrating support, demonstrating sincerity, demonstrating um, all of those things. So leaning heavily into that. And then last thing that I'd say as well, too, was just learning how to work across cross-functional teams. Um, you know, as, as you kind of progress, as anybody progresses in terms of like their leadership in an organization, you, you end up crossing paths more and more with the finance team and the accounting team and the strategy team and things like that as well, too. So I needed to be a little bit more well versed in other various areas of the business. So there's a long rambling answer about the uh, different ways that I had to kind of shore up my other skills when I transitioned roles. So it seems that, you know, when you went from that role, from, from center director into the regional business director, it was like a shift from operations to strategy. 
Do you feel that that operations experience was key for your success in the regional role? Or do you think that if you started out as a fellow and you were, you know, you entered in as a strategy, do you think that you would have been able to eventually, you know, pick up the ropes? And I asked that, you know, kind of for myself as well, as I enter Chen Meta, I am really curious about that. I will say that having been in a operational capacity made it easier for me to relate immediately to center leaders because I came in immediately from a position of, I know what you're going through. I know what you've done. Here's the way I've been in your position before. Here's the way that I approached it. Here's what worked for me. Here's what didn't work for me. And here's what I learned from it. And so there was kind of an immediate snap that I was able to kind of gain from having served in that role previously. It's not necessary though. It's not, it's not an absolute like critical component. I think it's easier to gain immediate influence having that experience, but um, certainly I've seen lots of successful people at ChedMed and other organizations who are able to um, lead as an external hire or have, um, you know, immediately into a strategy role to kind of answer your question um, at the, uh, you know, at the organization by making great decisions by observing maybe you haven't done it before but you can spend tons of time in a facility and you can ask lots of informational interviews and you can review lots of data and you can gain a, a robust understanding of the business and of operations um, and you don't need to be in an operate like a center manager center director position to be able to do that you know interestingly enough and i'm sure we'll talk more about <clears throat> blue cloud as well as the as the conversation progresses here in a little bit but it's actually something that I'm going through a little bit um, now. Like I've had to shift my mindset a little bit because my current capacity at my new organization, Blue Cloud, I was brought into a, a role kind of similar to my regional business director role at ChedMed, where I support all of our surgery centers across the country. And I haven't been a, a surgery center operator at Blue Cloud before, right? And so I've spent and I've been very intentional with learning and observing and listening and gathering data to understand to the best of my ability how our facilities operate and still spending as much time as I can within facilities um, as well to pick up operating procedures to be able to gain that influence with, um, with the center leaders. So I'm, I'm observing now that, again, that it's not necessary, that it's not a requirement, but you have to certainly be intentional if you haven't done it before about understanding um, the ins and outs of the position. Very valid answer. And that, that's actually a great point for us to transition. So you know, regarding Blue Crowd, uh, and you can you can speak more about exactly what they do. But from my research, I understand that it's almost the complete opposite from ChenMed in the sense that, you know, it's <laughs> it's still kind of ambulatory, but it's instead of primary care, it's dental. And instead of value-based care, it's fee-for-service. And instead of elderly patients, it's pediatrics. So can you speak a little bit more about what it's been to like really pivot like that? And also just you know, share to our listeners what Blue Cloud really does. Sure. Yeah, you bet. So uh, a few, I've always been interested in Blue Cloud. Like I mentioned, again, it started with, you know, a key part of my interest in Blue Cloud was, uh, you know, having them as a host on the podcast. And I've been in touch with uh, the executive team and the leadership team for some time. And I've always admired the work they did. And we connected kind of over the summer and I was in a position where I was, um, you know, interested in exploring options with Blue Cloud and Blue Cloud had an opening. And so I transitioned over here in August and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. So I've been on board for just about three months. Blue Cloud is the largest provider of pediatric dental services for children needing general anesthesia, um, patients treated under general anesthesia in the country. 
So just to kind of share a little bit more about what, what Blue Cloud does, I think we can all agree that um, most people don't enjoy going to the dentist. <laughs> most people don't, right? Let alone, you know, the noises, the, you know, the, the sensations in your mouth, all of those things are, can be definitely unpleasant. The lights in your face, let alone for um, young children and for um, individuals that have special needs or health challenges, the, the act of getting your dental work done of, of you know, filling a tooth or getting a cap placed or pulling a tooth can be very scary um, and sometimes not safe even as well. And so that's where Blue Cloud comes into place. And so what we do is um, we bring in pediatric patients and special needs patients, and we do that dental work that would be done um, sometimes in, in, a, in an ambulatory surgery center setting. Um, and this, the ASC is a great um, option and a much better alternative to the two other alternatives that exist, right? So, um, you know, in-office in office sedation is an option and then getting this sort of work in a hospital is an option as well. Um, the ASC blue cloud approach is uh, great from a safety perspective, right? Um, so it, it, it's better than an in-office kind of general anesthesia setting because um, the level of complexity um, just requires that work to be done in an, in an ASC with the support and resources and staffing that are needed in case an adverse event occurs to be prepared. Unfortunately, you see um, cases all the time of children that have poor outcomes, um, even, even death in, during in-office sedation procedures that are done. So, uh, you know, the blue cloud ASC approach is better, you know, from a safety perspective than, than doing it in office. But it beats the hospital, right, in doing it in a, from a cost perspective, right? You know, given the, the cost structure of, of, of hospitals and acute care facilities, it's, it's, it's expensive to get this sort of work done in a, in a hospital setting. And so the ASC is, is the, the happy medium uh, for kind of everybody in terms of it's a safe, alternative and an affordable option, low wait times relative to, you know, a hospital. Um, you know, we do multiple treatments. Also, we can do endodontic work and oral surgery work in our facilities as well. And so it's, it's kind of a happy medium for several different reasons. And, you know, my move to Blue Cloud was also consistent with my mention, my kind of personal values and mission that I mentioned earlier in terms of I've always wanted to work with an organization that addresses the Iron Triangle. So here we are again talking about how, like, like I just said, it's a safer alternative than, than, than other options. It's a more cost-effective alternative than other options. I mean, it's a higher quality and, and we're giving increased access as well to underserved populations. Most of our patients are on Medicaid um, in our communities as well. And so um, certainly I've been proud to join an organization that, um, addresses the iron triangle in, uh, in, in communities that have severe socioeconomic needs. So we operate uh, 20 facilities across the country, as far west as California, as far east as Florida. So across the country and, and, are, and are growing. And it's been um, a wonderful experience to uh, serve, serve these kids and expand access to dental care because um, I think if we have any kind of medical uh, biology, medical anatomy related folks, a lot of, you know, disease and sickness starts with um, oral care, right? Um, so very proud of the work that we do at Blue Cloud and um, I have, have enjoyed my, my three months since I've been.
I found it really interesting that, you know, you've been with two organizations that focus on ambulatory care, you know, being outside of the hospital. So I was wondering if you see any opportunities for other clinical areas within hospitals that you see getting pulled out to being ambulatory within the next 10 years? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so if there are any specific hospital-only procedures that can be done in an ASC setting in future years, I don't know. I, I don't have a great answer to that. But what I do know is that there will be more and more and more volume heading towards the, the ASC um, area. And, you know, I, I think that for a few different reasons, um, you know, but the reasons why I, I think this is just from like a market sizing perspective, population is growing, it's getting older, and so there will be a higher demand for more ORs, right, just in general. That combined with the fact that lots of great breakthroughs in, in less invasive technology as well in terms of our ability to do procedures with uh, that are minimally invasive, which supports from an, like them to being done in an ASC that requires that that is that is quick run recovery and things like that instead of needing a you know an, an inpatient admission. So I think that there's that piece of it in terms of like there's new technology that will support because again from a patient's perspective many would would prefer to get that work done in an ASC setting. Um, population is getting bigger and older, less invasive technology. Then I'd also say too, and this is a place that that is great for kind of in the ASC setting as well too, is um, ASCs, um, you know, as an employer, right, um, offer a great alternative to, from a work-life balance perspective as well, relative to a lot of kind of acute care settings as well. You know, most of our teams uh, on, on, a, on a regular basis are out by 3, 4 p.m. across our ambulatory surgery center. We start early in the morning, usually end a little bit early as well. Um, and so a lot of our employees are individuals who are seeking a, a better work-life balance and more predictable schedule that want weekends off, that want holidays off, don't want to be on call and things like that. And so I also think that the, the workforce as well that is seeking, that's aware of kind of limitations of work-life balance and seeking, I should say, work-life harmony um, will be, I think that the um, the labor availability in that there will be increasing as well, which um, is a good thing for ASCs. So. Yeah. And just in case our listeners don't know, ASCs are ambulatory surgical centers. Just in case, I'm sure most of our listeners are healthcare. Catch. Yeah. Yep. So both yeah. ChenMed and Blue Cloud have a high priority for growth. They're actively expanding across the country. And I wanted to hear more about how you feel it's like to work in an organization like that that's prioritizing growth over a more established organization that's, you know, really more set in their ways. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. I've, both of the organizations I've worked for are pursuing aggressive growth strategies, and I, I've really enjoyed it. So I'll share the things that I enjoy, have enjoyed about being in that sort of an, an organization. I don't have a great, like, benchmark to compare it to, but I'm, like, relative to somebody to use your word, kind of established. But what I've loved about being a part of two high-growth organizations has been piece number one. Um, I've, I've enjoyed being a part of two mission-driven high-growth companies because there's been a sense of urgency in the sense that, hey, we serve, in the case of ChenMed seniors, in the case of Blue Cloud kids that are under, underprivileged, underserved, and um, the more people need our services 
And there's a sense of urgency that comes with that um, and wanting to expand our services and access to care. And so it's, it's been, um, it's been busy and the pace has been quick at both organizations. But when you marry that with, hey, but I really believe in what I'm doing is helping people be healthier and give more access, it's, it's very fulfilling. I leave at the end of the day, like generally quite tired, um, but feeling like I have done good in the world. And so I've enjoyed that piece of it. Um, and then from a career perspective, like I think it's been a good thing as well to join a, a growing organization because um, there are opportunities for growth in growing organizations. And I've seen that in both ChenMed and Blue Cloud since I've been here as well, right? As, as an organization grows and acquires, you know, needs more leaders, oftentimes like the best leaders are individuals that have come up through the ranks of the organization itself, they know the ins and outs of how things operate. Um, and we've, again, at both organizations, we've made great external hires, but I've been in a strong position in both of them where I've been in a growing, growing organizations that are that need new leaders, and I've, um, you know, been able to kind of insert myself into those conversations and opportunities that are appropriate for me. So I'd say both of those things, um, you know, from a, from both a job satisfaction and just a career growth perspective, have been very fulfilling about being in high growth organizations. I like what you said about that kind of having that mission driven approach. Both organizations really do show that not only in what they do, but how they incentivize different things within the organization. As regulations change and value-based care margins get tighter, do you think that organizations will struggle to stay afloat? Do you see the landscape changing significantly? Or do you think that it's still going to be a sustainable model? You, you know, I, ever since basically as an undergrad, right, there, there have been lots of conversations about value-based care, preparing for value-based care and adopting value-based care and building out infrastructures that, that support value-based care. Um, and some have been successful and some haven't, right? I think that a few things to understand that we, you know, for all of us too, is like when we use value, when you, we use the word value-based care, that can be like a lot of different things, right? That can mean like a fully capitated, like some people, when they say value-based care, think of like a fully capitated full risk approach, like a ChedMed, but there's also um, bundled payments and H caps and like other things as well too that they're like there's a whole scale of like risk bearing when you talk about kind of value based care and a whole scale of organizations that are are trying to um, prepare for um, prepare for it or adopt it or or things like that as well. So you know I, I do think that there have been some meaningful investments that have been have been made in value based care. Like I guess just speaking to you know, the example of, of ChenMed, um, right? Like ChenMed and, you know, has a, has built out an EMR, right? That captures the data that's needed to support a value-based care model. And that took, uh, took a while, right? It took, it took some years. So I think that, you know, organizations have been over the past few years making meaningful investments, building up their teams, building up their capabilities um, to um, put themselves in a position to, be successful in a value-based care world. Um, and I think time will tell uh, if it will be successful or not, but I, um, I certainly think that um, the shift is a positive one. And I, I am a, an advocate for anybody that's entering into this space and trying to expand you know, access to uh, you know, reduce costs, increase access, increase quality. I'm also an optimist on that value-based care approach. I appreciate that answer. Coming back a little bit to you, so you moved from 
you know, very quickly from Miami to Louisville to now Houston. So as a young professional, I wondered how you managed this process of moving around so much and, and what's that been like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll give my, here's my, since 2019, it was Utah to Ithaca to Miami to Kentucky to, to Houston. And here we are in 2023. So that was all <laughs> over the past four years. So uh, I've definitely been in a lot of, a lot of different places. And one thing that I, I have learned myself, and this is, you know, I, I won't make like a blanket statement, like this is the right approach for everybody in every situation, but I, I have thoroughly enjoyed seeing different parts of the country and living in different parts of the country. And I've found things that I've loved about each of those different places that I've, I've, I've mentioned so far. For me personally, I learned that I can be happy just about anywhere, right? Um, it's been really important for me to get grounded kind of in um, in a social kind of fa fabric or network as well that I can lean on and trust and support in each of these places. Um, you know, be it a group that you play a sport with or be it a church or be it a professional organization with people that share a common interest in. I've always in every place that I've, I've landed in, I've tried to build relationships quickly with people that I can lean on. Um, in those different in those different places. So I um, ha have been glad for, um, you know, for me, an important piece has been my my faith. And so I've, I've pretty quickly been able to build networks and connections and relationships with people in my immediate church community as well, too. So um, that provided some sense of kind of familiarity to me in all of these places that were geographically different that I had never been in before. So that was that was a piece. And, um, you know, I guess on the point of just like moving so much, because I know this is a pretty common question, like I my approach has been pretty open to moving um, based off of what the best best opportunity that presents itself in, in my career. It's been a great thing for me. And I, I think that it's been the right decision for me in my career to live in all of these different places over the course of the past few years um, and, and would encourage anybody that's in a position to do so to, to strongly consider making sacrifices of choosing to live in a place that maybe you wouldn't normally choose to live in by choice. All else equal, ceteris paribus, right? Acknowledging that not everybody is in that position. Maybe someone cares for a family member or wants to be closer to family or a cost prohibitive or whatever it is. But I think that if you're in a position where you're a little bit flexible geographically instead of saying, no, I will only live in this city and take jobs that are within a 40 mile radius of this metropolitan area, um, opportunities present themselves um, and opportunities to kind of accelerate present themselves too. So that's what I would say on that. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a limiting factor really for a lot of people to, to just only be in New York City. Like there's so much out, else out there. And so I completely agree with you on that. And, you know, I'm from New York City and I'm, I'm moving to Miami, which I guess some yep. would say isn't isn't that different, but I feel it's pretty different. Um, <laughs> so a lot of our listeners are early careerists in the healthcare space. And I was just wondering any general you know tips or advice you have as people either start their careers or enter graduate school. Here's my biggest thing. When you get a sense for what you think, okay, healthcare is so big, right? Like the healthcare, you can, there's so many different routes you can get. And it's like, I remember like initially feeling like, oh, I have no idea like what I want to do. Like, is it the consult? Is it this, this, that? And like I mentioned earlier in our podcast, like it was the consulting thing. Like that's what I thought I wanted to do. My advice to anybody is like, when you start to get an itch for what you want to do, go all in on it. Like if you're like, hmm, this consulting thing is kind of interesting. Like, call consultants, go to the, like, read about consulting firms, 
do a consulting internship, do case prep, like spend all as much time as, as you can in that world because pretty quickly, if you choose a consulting job or you could say the same thing about a hospital fellowship or a job as a payer or whatever it is, that is going to be your life and that's what you're going to spend, you know, eight to 10 hours a day doing, right? And so my advice is like, once you start to kind of specialize and feel where you want to go, go all out and see. And, and one of two things will happen. One of one thing is like, hey, like I'm spending eight hours a day doing these informational interviews and reading these papers and shadowing in this place. And I love it. Like, I just want to do more and more and more. You know, you've found a fit. The other thing is like, the other thing that can happen is like, I am so tired of talking about this or watching this and I can't see myself in it. And it's like, that's when it's time to pivot. So I think so many of us, and I've, I've fallen into this as well, are like, yep, I think this is what I want to do. And I think it's what I want to do because it sounds kind of interesting or maybe even, you know, paralysis analysis sort of thing where you just like research that you really want to. I just am like spend all as much time as you can doing it. And pretty quickly, you'll see if it's what you want to do or not. Just find good leaders, right? Like in all of the organizations like that anyone chooses to work for, um, your your leader has a tremendous impact on your development, your growth, your career, your job satisfaction. And I've been extremely fortunate to have great leaders across my career that have advocated for me, that have helped develop me, that have um, corrected me and provided feedback when needed. They can really make or break you. So those are, that's what I'd say. I completely agree with that. I've actually heard someone, one of my mentors actually, he went as far as saying that sometimes the leader that you work for is more important than the organization you work for. And that that will ultimately mm. have a bigger influence on your career. So I, I definitely agree with that. So we, we like to end off on, you know, a little fun note. So we're going to do some, some trivia round questions. We're just going to ask a oh, question. No. Okay. And then you say the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. Cool. So favorite food. Sushi. Sushi. Favorite movie genre. Documentary. Favorite place to travel. Arizona. And for our Cornell listeners, favorite place to eat in Ithaca, favorite restaurant? I loved Mix. Um, that's a really cool one. But probably the place that I ate at the most was lots of wings over DoorDash, Uber Eats orders late at fair. night when I was doing homework in, on campus. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. I, de I definitely resonate with that. Well, listen, Christian, it's been really great to you know have you on the podcast and I really, I felt like I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot and I'm very excited to you know, stay in touch and see where this goes. Absolutely. Daniel, thanks for the interview. Um, sure have enjoyed the thoughtful questions about my background and experience. Um, if anyone's listening and wants to chat or connect or trade notes, would, would ha be happy to connect and feel free to reach out. So thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Health Conscious Podcast. Stay tuned in for our next episode by subscribing on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed. And follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at the Health Conscious Podcast for updates and exclusive behind the scenes. See you next time.